You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We always appreciate you making us a part of your day and what a day it's shaping up to be. Markets have reopened after the three-day weekend with Monday being the Juneteenth holiday. We're going to check in with Darren Newsom about how the market is viewing the weather forecast for the central part of the Corn Belt looking forward. And then in segment two, we're going to dive deeper into that forecast. John Baranek of DTN Weather will be joining us with a look at what he's keeping an eye on in the week ahead. And in segment three, we're going to turn the Focus back to the proteins. Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University publishes the monthly meat demand monitor. He'll join us in segment three with an update on what that monitor shows for the month of May and what he's watching for feed yard economics as these cattle uh, markets continue to be volatile. But let's dive in first to the grain markets. Joining us now, Darren Newsom, senior analyst with Bar Chart. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me on on what's an explosive morning again, Mike. It is. Darren, let's recap last week's on incredible rally heading mm-hmm. into the three-day weekend. The weather is top concern for traders. We made it through the three-day weekend. How's the trade responding now with the reopen? What what we saw right off the bat was another was follow-through buying from last week. We saw, you know, both corn and soybeans just skyrocket, you know, once the markets opened Monday evening. And then as the as the overnight session played out, you know, that what 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 often happens is you burn up all those buy orders and then it leaves a vacuum underneath the market. So you get some you get some commercial hedging and I'm going to guess there was plenty of orders sitting there between 6 and 6.10 on these corn. So you get the market rocking up to $6 hit a high of 6.09. You're starting to get those hedge orders filled. And, and then you've got nothing underneath to support it. So it drops back down. None of this is unusual. This is exactly what happens when we get into a weather market. And, and that's where we are. I mean, these these are weather derivatives. These are weather markets. And in the short, and, and they usually last, you know, anywhere right around six weeks or so. And we're already four weeks into it. So, you know, th- this is what we should expect to have happen coming out of a weekend. You, you trade what happened weather-wise over the weekend. Once that happens, once you get those orders out of the way, you immediately turn to the next round of, of weather forecasts. It'll be interesting to hear what John has to say, but the ones I've seen uh, have some weather across the plains and Midwest uh, scattered around again for the weekend. So a little bit of the fires come out, at least here uh, early Tuesday morning. Darren, you mentioned uh, typically we see a six-week span here on these weather markets. We're four weeks deep into this one. For listeners who are maybe a little unplugged from the grain markets, mm-hmm. how much has the December corn contract rallied in that prior four weeks? Basically, $1.20. We've seen it move from a low of four ninety late in May up to almost six ten uh here overnight. And what I really want to point out is, you know, this is a fact, this is a function not necessarily of, of commercial buying. They've been bullish for a long time, but we've seen a sh- uh, we've seen a change in the non-commercial attitude. Uh, three weeks ago, in, in CFTC's report, uh, that group held, and I look at legacy futures only because that's really really only one that matters. They were holding a net short of sixty-two thousand, almost three hundred contracts. And as of last Friday's report, so it would have been of this past Tuesday, a week ago today. 
that had switched to a long of 45,100 contracts. So in about three reporting weeks time, let's call it four weeks time, we saw a switch of 107,000 contracts. And that's not counting the buying that occurred from Wednesday through, through Friday and then again early Monday night. So the, I'm, I'm guessing this position is going to be well above 50,000, 60,000 contracts in next Friday's report. So again, this has been driven by non-commercial buying. They're very, you know, we'll see how long they stick with it. And what really jumps out at me is it's mostly been short covering. It has not been new buying. So we've seen the short position reduced. And that's just simply not as bullish as if they were just loading up buying uh, contracts at this point. Right now, it's just getting out of shorts. Darren, a lot of growers can remember just a short 11 years ago, 2012, market started rallying early in the summer, had some neighbors uh, in Iowa sell some grain early on those strong prices. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they were delivering to the elevator that fall at prices two to three dollars below where the market ended up going. How do you handle the marketing challenges with an early season rally like this? Are you selling the physical and buying puts? Well, what, what you have to do here is think of it as a business. And I, and I know I know it's easy to get caught up in all of the you know, the, all the hysteria that's going on. If anyone looks at social media over the past weekend, you can see the hysteria. What you have to do is take a very business-like approach. If you can make money uh, with futures at six and given whatever basis might be, and I've, I've heard basis is starting to collapse in new crop, but if, it's, if it makes money, sell some. I mean, you're not going to go broke selling some at a, at a good profit. So, so get some locked in. I wouldn't do everything uh, because you know we haven't topped this. We haven't topped this this weather market out yet. But yeah, certainly do it because when we get a weather change, uh, and yes, there's no such thing as an analogous year. We can't say this is going to do exactly what 2012 did because everything's different. Chaos tells us. Chaos theory tells us if there's one difference, we can expect a different result. And so that's what we're looking at. We had an earlier than it, we had an earlier rally this time around than we did in 2012. But it's been impressive. Again, a dollar twenty. So use it to our advantage. Let's sell some of this up here. If folks are more comfortable, I don't really like buying puts uh, because volatility has skyrocketed. It has jumped. So you know, some will be talking about selling calls. You have to understand that is a limited reward, unlimited risk position. It, it can be used, uh, but when you just have to understand the risk going into it. Darren, we're seeing the soybean market today. New crops suffer a little bit more than old crop. Is there a, a additional vulnerability for new crop soybeans as we push deeper into June? It, it's possible. I mean, I think I think soybeans, particularly new crop soybeans, have been riding the coattails of corn here a little bit uh, during this rally. But what really grabbed my attention was the old crop market late last week. Uh, the, the rally that we saw there, uh, lean hogs, crude oils, the oil seeds in general. So we know we, we can see the, the crush demand for U.S. soybeans. Domestic crush is starting to go up. But with all of the China dominated markets rallying at the same time, you wondered what was kind of cooking in the, you know, behind the scenes. And so then we have Secretary of State Blinken going over and having meetings with uh, with, Ch uh, with Chinese officials over the weekend. Uh, can't really believe the headlines and the stories, but the headlines are saying there was some promising uh, possibility of some progress made in those talks. We'll see what happens. Uh, but there is certainly something going on. Uh, again, if we look at those China-dominated markets, commodity markets, and the way they were acting last week. It is going to be interesting to watch that Chinese story continue to develop. Darren, before we let you go, we saw the wheat market see a little bit of a pop this last week. Not a lot of follow-through today. What are you watching as the week goes on? 
basically, again, it, it just comes down to weather. You know, harvest is, is uh, rolling along in, in both hardwood winter and softwood winter. So, I mean, we are going to get some yield reports rolling in. Uh, we'll see how much damage there actually was across parts of the Southern Plains, uh, particularly Oklahoma and Southern Kansas, or mostly South, Southern and Western Kansas. Uh, we'll see how much damage was actually done there as the harvest continues to roll north. And, and I think that'll set the tone uh, for both the Kansas City and Chicago markets moving ahead. So much to watch, folks, this summer. We are just barely nosing into it. We've been talking with Darren Newsom, Senior Analyst at Bar Chart. Darren, we always appreciate your insight here on AOA. Again, Mike, thanks for having me on. Folks, stay with us. We are going to talk the forecast in a little more detail with John Baranek, Meteorologist with DTN Weather here when AOA returns. Stick around. There'll be more coming up in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. 
Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and as we just heard from Darren Newsom, the grain markets are watching the weather forecast. Saw a tremendous rally at the tail end of this last week. Now the trade kind of catching their breath as they look to see what the impact was of rains over the weekend and what the forecasts are calling for as we look out down the line. Joining us to help do the exact same thing is meteorologist John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today. Oh, yeah. Always good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, we're talking about this weather market, John. I want to dive right into that first with a look at the Corn Belt here on the drought monitor. What have we seen over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it looks pretty dire. I mean, starting um, June 1st, we really started to see that drought monitor pick up with some dryness concerns that people had been having for the previous couple of weeks. We finally got some tangible evidence to kind of point to that. And it's been getting worse there for almost the entire Corn Belt over the last couple of weeks. So when that came out on Thursday, it was no surprise. We had, you know, widespread moderate drought across uh, large sections, um, continuous sections of the Corn Belt. So uh, we've, we've got some issues in several spots now that didn't come without rain, though. Uh, we did see a system late last weekend and uh, into early in the week um, that wasn't really counted too much on the drought monitor that came out last Thursday. So we'll see probably some improvement across uh, Ohio, especially. They got uh, quite a bit of rain there on a Tuesday, Wednesday time frame um there so that, that that'll help out and there were some other spots as well over the weekend we saw a system move through from the northern plains down into the southeast it's continuing there now uh but we, we saw some decent rainfall in, in some sections um of of iowa um and some other parts of, of minnesota too so you know th things aren't absolutely horrible i mean we, we it's, it's not where we want to be and this you know we've got widespread drought coverage it's not something to balk at but um, you know, it, it could be a lot worse and especially with the forecast coming up. All right. And it's that forecast we want to dive into, John, I just want to put into perspective for listeners who maybe haven't taken a peek at the drought monitor in recent weeks, folks, this D one to D two abnormally dry to moderate drought extends from the Western state line of Nebraska to Wyoming, all the way to the Atlantic ocean covering Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, parts of Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland. That's the strip of abnormal dryness across the country. John, you mentioned this week's forecast might not not quell a lot of concerns where i guess is there rain in the forecast and if so for whom there is but you know a lot of that portion that you talked about that's in drought is going to be hot and dry here for much of the week uh we do have that system down in the southeast and we may see some showers kind of poking up into pennsylvania and into ohio kentucky here throughout the course of the week we also have a front way out west in the in the dakotas um that'll be uh producing some showers and thunderstorm strings of them. We've had some already here uh, yesterday into today. Uh, we'll get some more 
of the next couple of days here, both there in the Dakotas, kind of down into Nebraska and Kansas as well. We'll get some, but it's the, really the heart of the, the Midwest, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, really not getting much. And those temperatures are going to be uh, quite high. We're going to be exceeding 90 degrees. We've already started to do that yesterday. We saw hundreds, uh, hundred degree temperatures in South Dakota yesterday. Um, but a lot of 90s here over the over the course of the week. So we've got some several several days uh, to get through. But once we get towards the the end of the week here, uh, we're looking a little bit better. Uh, what's causing this heat and dryness this week is kind of a linkage of two ridges, one over Texas and another over kind of Hudson Bay area. And it's really kind of putting that block in, in place. But we're going to see those those two ridges split apart. The, the Canadian one will go east and the, the Texas one will kind of linger or head a little bit towards the four corners. And we, we create this channel right in between, right through the corn belt of potential there for systems to move through. Sure enough, we're expecting one here, um, really getting into the northern plains on Friday night and Saturday, and then really trucking right across the, the majority of the corn belt for the weekend into early next week. Now, uh, you know, it's coming with showers and thunderstorms, and we all know how thunderstorms work out in the summertime. They hit some areas and they don't hit other areas. So um, this one system's not going to do it. But it does open up the potential here that uh, we have more systems move through that that kind of weakness, that channel area right through the Corn Belt going through next week. Um, and models are pointing to yet another system that's moving through kind of mid-late next week, maybe next weekend time frame uh, of moving through as well. So we're in a better situation after this week, I think. So we, we got to get through these, these hot days. We'll still have some high temperatures going through. You know, we're getting into summer now, uh, but uh, we're at least getting some better chances for rain at a more consistent level than we've seen across the eastern half of the Corn Belt uh, than what, what we've seen since probably springtime. All right. Well, that would be good news, John, if and when that system does end up developing this weekend. But of course, we've got a couple of days where the trade will be actively watching the weather. You mentioned hot and dry over the Midwest part of the country. Do you expect to see any strong winds? Is that a risk here to on top of the heat and dryness? No, uh, fortunately not. So uh, temp uh, winds actually are out of the Northeast, which is very unusual um, for, for this time of year, or really any time of year. Uh, and that keeps temperatures down a touch. It could be a lot worse uh, if winds were screaming out of the southwest, uh, bringing in all the heat. But it's just it's just the nature of being under that dome of, of, of high pressure that's, that's really causing all the heat. It, luckily, it's not coming with those winds. All right, John, the other question I've got for you here as we talk about weather across the country, the Southern Plains, they have finally seen a turn in their drought, continue to see some improvement across the drought monitor. Any additional rainfall expected for that uh, western Kansas down through Texas region? Yeah, since we're seeing some changes in the Corn Belt, we're going to see some changes down there in the Southern Plains as well. So they had been in a pretty good pattern of, you know, getting showers and thunderstorms moving through. And, you know, this week they kind of have that as well. It's a little bit more spotty. Um, and we are going to have to worry about some severe weather uh, when they occur here this week. Um, but that heat dome that's really building across Texas is intense. And it's not going to really move a whole lot, even though that ridge is going to shift a little bit further west here uh, this weekend and the next week. It's really going to encapsulate most of Texas um, for the next couple of weeks. So we, we're talking about triple digit temperatures for a large portion of Texas and maybe getting across the Red River into uh, Oklahoma and, and maybe into Louisiana and Arkansas at times too um, for, for the next couple of weeks. So uh, the heat Oof. is going to be there. And 
yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be rough here for for the next couple of weeks. You know, John, since you've brought up Louisiana, Arkansas, the heat risk that's developing down there, of course, we have a tremendous amount of agricultural produce grown in that Mississippi Delta region. They are a little farther south of the ongoing dryness. They're a little farther east of those massive rain events that have taken place in the Southern Plains. Is the Delta setting up from a weather perspective to be kind of the garden spot this year? Yeah, you know what? They're not in a bad shape. I would probably, you know, lean a little bit further east, more towards Alabama, Georgia, Carolinas as kind of a better spot to be in. But, you know, they're not bad. I mean, they had plenty of rainfall last week, of course, came with a bunch of severe weather. Uh, so we had some damage concerns out of that. And they had been drier previously. Uh, but the rain that we saw over the last week really, uh, really perked things up there in terms of soil moisture. They're sitting in a good spot. Um, it will be warm, but they're not going to be under the extreme heat that we see across Texas uh, or across the, the upper Midwest this week. Um, that kind of uh, upper level low that that's producing showers down there is going to keep them a little bit cooler, keep a little more cloud cover in the area. Um, and then next week, I think they've got chances, at least for that front from the system that comes through the Corn Belt to kind of set up shop there and may produce some additional uh, chances of at least uh, of some precipitation going through next week as well. So, you know, honestly, they're not in a bad position to be in right now. I, I think I think you're right. I'm not sure if it's really the garden spot. I don't think conditions are perfect, but um, uh, really not bad uh, as as a whole. Well, that is good to hear, John. But of course, the risk of cro uh, of crop damage across the southeastern part of the United States is accelerating kind of this time of year. We've got summer officially underway tomorrow, which means the tropics start to uh, get a little more active, don't they? They do. Yeah. Uh, you know, usually we don't see that really pick up until uh, August. But, you know, uh, the start of the hurricane season is June 1st. And uh, we already had one system in the Gulf of Mexico. It was very brief. But uh, it did occur uh, earlier this month. Uh, we've got another one. Uh, our tropical Storm Brett is out there in the middle of the Atlantic, what we call the, the main development region there between Africa and the Caribbean Sea. Um, that one could become a hurricane before it gets into the Caribbean. But uh, luckily, El Nino is going to shield us a bit. We've got a lot of upper-level shear uh, over the uh, Caribbean that's going to help to rip that system apart. Um, you know, shear you can think of basically is is blowing the tops off those thunderstorms uh, when that hurricane comes in. So it brings in drier air and and really kind of destroys the the inner eye workings of the hurricane. So hopefully that'll that'll take care of that system there. But uh, there's another one on its heels, and you know there's a lot a lot of warm temperatures, a lot of sea uh, sea surface temperatures out there are very very warm. So we can see these kind of popping up and being a concern here as we go forward. All right, we'll keep our eye on the tropics. Meanwhile, Midwest corn growers keep an eye on that forecast Friday, Saturday. Let's see if this channel can develop and bring some moisture in. We've been talking to John Baranek, meteorologist at DTN Weather. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks again, Mike. Have a good one. Stick around. Glenn Tonser joins us when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up join us every tuesday for around the table brought to you by chs as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities each week we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system from global market access to local expertise we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
Why do you listen? You get the local news and the weather is up to date all the time. Oh, I love sports. It's good to hear what's going on because you can't make it to all the games. I listen from 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night. It moves with me. It's portable. It goes with me. It's in my car. I can find my mood. I can flip through stations up and down the dial. There's always something that's talking to me. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at what's going on in the grains and oil seeds on the day Tuesday, we see a fairly mixed bag to start things off for the trading week, the holiday shortened week. Coming out of the three-day holiday weekend, grains opened higher on Monday night's open before giving back some of that strength and a little bit of profit-taking, it appears. December corn did gap higher through the $6 mark, but has faded since the Monday night open, sitting just below that $6 mark here as we work through Tuesday's trade. Overall, just a couple of cents either side of unchanged with a little bit more weakness in the soybean complex. Now, rains over the weekend were spotty with decent coverage in Iowa, but below expected and spotty rains in the rest of the Corn Belt. The rain chances for Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana look light over the next seven days. Temperatures expected to get into the 90s, which could stress already low soil moisture. The better rain chances look to focus on the Dakotas, northwest Minnesota, and Ohio here as we head to the weekend. So something to keep our eyes on, of course, uh, is this rain forecast and the outlook here as the many areas really need to see some rainfall here at this juncture. Meantime, over in the livestock trade, lean hogs off to a very strong start on Tuesday after we saw a bit of a whipsaw in the cash hog market with cash hogs recovering from Friday's losses to trade higher on Monday. And that's seemingly giving us some support overall, while the cattle trade is relatively mixed here with grains and oil seeds overall. As we see right now uh, in the trade, corn is uh, just a, a penny or two either side of unchanged. Soybeans anywhere from about 5 to 12 lower, and the wheat trade is mainly 1 to 2 lower in Chicago and Kansas City, with spring wheat a little bit lower than that. Crude oil hanging around $70 a barrel. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. And ordinarily, when we turn our focus over to the protein markets, we tend to either talk demand with our friends in the restaurant and food service business, or we talk supply with our friends on the ground with the livestock. This next segment, we're going to combine the two a little bit. We're going to kick things off uh, with the demand conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University. He's recently compiled the monthly demand monitor for meat in the month of May. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening on the ground with his feedlot economics that he researches. So we're going to get into all of that. Dr. Tonser, thanks so much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's kick things off here with the meat demand monitor. Glenn, if you would, for listeners who have maybe not heard us discuss this yet, what is the meat demand monitor? Yeah, so it's a project based here at Kansas State University, beef and pork checkoff funded. We launched it in February of 2020, and it's a nationally representative survey of U.S. residents. So that includes both meat and non-meat consumers. Over 2,000 people every month, a thousand retail and a thousand food service uh, targeted surveys every month. So it's a deep dive into all things meat. It's a deep dive into all things meat. And as you mentioned, so many different categories of meat and how consumers are, are choosing between them. Glenn, so let's dive in. Let's talk first about the retail level. These are consumers going to the meat case, correct, at their grocery store. How are they feeling about prices? Yeah, so our, our metrics on retail demand, as you said, grocery store for at-home consumption, is May improved on April. Uh, we monitor a couple beef, a couple pork, you know, chicken, and other categories. And across the board, we had some improvement in May, which is very welcomed. Uh, the last several times you've had me on here, we've had slippage. So that's a nice change, of course. It is. Glenn, are we seeing it across the board? Yeah, pretty much across those proteins within the grocery space, May looked better than April, uh, getting close to where May of 2022 was. And I'm interjecting that because, I mean, you and I can just wet the whistle on these topics in these segments. But those that uh, see value in this info can go to our agmanager.info website, get full reports. And the end of May, I actually did a deep dive into uh, documenting trends in domestic meat demand, showing it peaked in 2022, uh, the middle of 22 specifically and tied that to financial sentiment of households. So uh, specifically, Mike, in April of 23, 80% say their household finances are the same or worse than they were the year earlier, which tells us only 20% say they've improved. And in that report, I tie that to key differences in demand, both for beef and pork. So uh, hopefully that story is getting better with narrative about inflation slowing and so forth. Um, but we definitely have a pocket squeeze for most households. Glenn, I'm wondering if we could take a step back while we're talking about demand, maybe maybe spend a minute telling us how you calculate demand. Because as I look at the meat case and I see prices at record levels on the beef side, to be sure, out there right now, I think, well, if prices are that high, demand must be phenomenal to support those prices. But uh, could you tell us how you look at it? Yeah. So, so statements about demand need to reflect both the volume that moves and the price that's paid. Uh, perhaps the biggest misnomer is actually not just to look at the price, as you said, but to look at you know a per capita consumption number. So USDA puts out a per capita consumption number, and that's just an estimate of the volume of something, in your example, beef, but it's done for pork, chicken, other categories that we think went through the U.S. system. And that's valuable, right? I mean, that gets into supply availability, net of trade, but that itself tells us nothing about price. And then when you bring in information about price, as you said, I marry the two up to make a comment. The simplest example for your listeners, Mike, would be if in one year we managed to produce 
and market more beef in the U.S. and the price received for beef went up, I know very clearly that demand went up because you pushed a higher volume supplement through a market at a higher price. Most years, there's this price quantity trade-off. So you need to do some, let's call it geeky economist math to say if demand went up or not. Okay. That makes sense. It's got to be both factors. We cannot just look at the price, even though the price is definitely what grabs my attention when I'm standing at the meat case right now. Let's turn the focus, Glenn, over to food service. While we're still looking at meat demand, we've seen restaurant prices accelerate. Are we seeing consumers start to say, hey, maybe we've maxed it out? Yeah, I would call May kind of flat, depending on which category, you know, which species we'd look at. There's a few examples. So example, beef pulled back or was flat, pork pulled back or was flat, uh, chicken breast was up uh, just a hair, and then seafood was up a little bit more uh, when we look through food service, uh, but no big changes. And I'll remind folks, if you pull up the past few months, I do think consumers have said, whoa, these prices, you know, particularly away from home, uh, we're going to choose to eat at home instead. And that's a bit of a, you know, I don't think we're officially in a recession, but a kind of a classical recession response is if household finances are being squeezed, people tend to consume at home more. Um, you know, they're willing to prepare their own meal more and so forth as part of their own way to save. And that shows up in a little bit softer food service demand. Does that also show up, Glenn? I know you do directly ask where people are eating their prior day's meal. Are you seeing that reflected there? That That's a little bit lower um, away from home rates than a year ago, but not drastic. Uh, I think what we're seeing instead is, you know, if, if you went back to working in person for, you know, you're not at home, you're still eating lunch away from home, but maybe you're eating a cheaper lunch. So the away from home versus at home hasn't changed a lot, but exactly where, you know, at when, if you're eating it away from home, where you're getting it. And if you're supersizing the meal or not, you know, if you're paying those up charges or not, those kind of distinctions are becoming more distinct. All right, Glenn, that certainly makes some sense. Now, now let's let's take this to the next level. We've talked about how the cattle feeder, the cow-calf producer out there now, we've got some pretty good times in that country. We're finally seeing some, some black ink for that industry. But looking at these price levels, looking at these demand levels, Glenn, what concerns do you have here for the cattle feeder as you look out for the remainder of summer 2023? Well, perhaps the biggest concern for a current cattle feeder is, am I going to be able to keep the yard full? So that's not necessarily for this summer, but when I think out to Q4 and certainly into you know 2024, it's the volume of feeder cattle that's available to place is top of mind. Um, a little bit more immediate here would be is whether or not I need to think about locking in these higher prices or not. Um, to each is their own. There's several fundamental reasons that we have higher fed cattle prices. Several are optimistic they'll be sustained or go higher due to supply side forces. So I'm not sitting here telling somebody to lock it in, but the agmanager.info resource, every month we put out a feedlot uh, margins, basically a unhedged margin uh, for cattle leaving the yard. Cattle leaving the yard June through November uh, here in Kansas are projected to have one to $200 per head returns. Now, it depends on which month exactly that number, but historically those are pretty large margins. So there are some hedgeable opportunities for those that want to look into that. Uh, others that want to remain exposed, uh, I totally understand that as well. Glenn, those are pretty staggering statistics, 150 to $200 margins. Of course, that's nothing compared to what the Packer was making in 2020, 2021. But how long has it been since we've seen an unhedged cattle feeder be able to, to have a market provide those sort of margins? Do we have to go back to 2015, 2014? So, so there's individual months that have occurred off and on since then. But you would have to go back to uh, 2016, early 2017 to find a multi-month run 
you know, think six to eight months of sustained margins above a hundred bucks. Um, and some of that's just, again, fundamentals of where we were at at the time. Uh, my word of caution would be, and a little bit of this is Dr. Bayer, so I'll apologize in advance of that, is th these numbers do presume you've kept the yard full. So you're able to spread your fixed cost over, you know, a planned number. So if you have a 20,000 head feed yard, you've actually got 20,000 head, right? Most of the time going through it. Going forward, that's going to be hard. So I think these margins are attractive for sure. And they are welcomed by those in the industry. 100% get that. But I would encourage folks to think about not just the next few months of those positive margins, but how to think about those as part of surviving the next two or three years with lower throughput. Lower throughput, lower just absolute volume of feeders. Glenn, do you think we are starting to see the cattle herd rebuild? Are you hearing across Kansas? I know your state is still gripped in drought. Any producers there across Kansas uh, actively looking to expand on the cow-calf side? Yeah, well, well, I mean, here in Kansas, the most common would be is if able start to build back to where they were. So the expand versus get back where we were are two different narratives. Um, so if I have a hundred cow herd and I'm now at 80 for drought reasons, step one is to kind of get to hundred when I can to spread my fixed cost back like the way I wanted to. That's not the same as going from hundred to 120 when I've never been at 120 before. Most in Kansas are not positioned and maybe not even interested in a net expansion quite yet. They want to experience one or two good uh, years of returns before they do that. And they're kind of in a more, can we repopulate mode? But I think there's other regions of the country that might actually be trying to do some net expansion. And we'll learn more about that in the next six months. It's all coming. Glenn, you mentioned the risks that are ahead with that tight feeder market, the risks that are ahead with fat cattle. Obviously, we know these markets are volatile. Any any special concerns since we're hitting these peaks here in the summer on the fat cattle side? Uh, I don't know any special ones. I mean, we started this with meat demand. You know, meat demand is softened compared to a year ago. But context is important is it's still above what it was pre-pandemic. Uh, that is important in the ability to sustain elevated, in this case, beef cutout values, but to round it out also for pork and so forth. Um, we can't take that for granted. Uh, there's definitely, if, if in fact we have a recession and things get worse, that would put downward pressure on fed cattle prices specifically. So that's out there. And if you're worried about that, that's one of the reasons to think about hedging. But supply fundamentals are definitely in favor of those that own assets that are in shrinking availability, and that is live cattle. It certainly is. Glenn, of course, as you mentioned, your team has researched and publishes a lot of information at that re, uh, agmanager.info resource. What else can folks find there? So, I mean, yeah, pretty much anything that I'm associated with um, that's a public talk or a public report, you can find there under the livestock and meat section. There's also grain oriented stuff, um, you know, land values. You know, I have several colleagues in the agricultural department that do a wealth of good work as well. It is a fantastic resource, so check it out, agmanager.info. We've been talking with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State Ag Economics. Dr. Tonser, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. And stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have more AOA coming up here in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. 
Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Dylan Tacky, an agronomy specialist with CHS, about agronomic strategies for the growing season. Why should farmers create crop plans, and what does an effective crop plan look like? Like any good business, you should always make sure before we do something that we have our plan laid out, know where our dollars are going to. You know, the crop market, it changes daily, every second. The same can happen with the fertilizer market, chemical market. So we need to know that we're being sure that what we're putting out there before we do, it makes sense because it's going to make us money at the end of the day. Starting in the fall, you know, we're putting together our plan to get fields grid sampled, looking at fertility, and then making our map and potash racks. Then from there, we'll go into next spring. So that's putting the right seed portfolio together based off what those soil samples are showing us, making sure we're using the right nitrogen and the type of nitrogen and rates and the timing of it. And then the next is our chemical program, making sure we're doing it either in a no-till program or a till program, followed by a post-emerge program. And then also what we're going to be doing for foliar feeds, plant growth regulators, all those good things, and then the fungicide application to follow it. Dylan, what solutions are you recommending for this year's agronomic challenges? You know, in a corn plant, I like to say no bad days. We've got products to try to help eliminate stress off the plant by any means that we can. That all starts, too, with the farm plan. We know whether we've got too much heat, drought, too cold, we're going to have some sort of stress. So going back to your first question, Mike, we're making sure that we're putting those products in there so we can pair for them. What are some simple ways growers can improve their return on input investment? Studying and working with a trustworthy agronomy sales rep. The only way that you're going to know if something works is doing it for yourself on your own operation, on your own acres. That's Dylan Tacky, agronomy specialist with CHS. Dylan, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's matchingdonors.com. Matchingdonors.com 
links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit matchingdonors.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we have an update on a story we have been tracking for the past several months. The Bureau of Land Management in Washington, D.C. has issued a proposed rule that would expand the definitions of categories for leased land under the BLM. Basically, it's going to change the guidelines for who can rent the federal government's land for what purpose. Now, there has been a strong contingent of livestock grazers who have long rented BLM ground. There have been a number of rules and requirements for them to keep that ground up to snuff. But in this most recent proposal, the Bureau of Land Management added conservation as a standalone category for these parcels, which means the livestock would have to come off in those parcels that are designated as conservation. Now, this is a huge issue in Western states across the country where so many livestock producers do rely on federal grounds. And on Thursday of this past week, the BLM extended the comment period on that proposed rule. They extended it from June 15th, which was when it was supposed to end. They have extended it through July 5th. So if you are a land or excuse me, a livestock producer who grazes on federal grounds, it would probably be worth your time to log in and comment on this issue. Six Western governors wrote a letter to the Secretary of Agriculture, Deb Haaland, last week, and they described the rule as a search for a solution as a solution, rather, in search of a problem. They pointed out those existing conservations on measures on federal lands and BLM ground, and uh, they note that this is going to make life more complicated for tenants. Uh, Mar- Brad Little, I should say, governor of Idaho, noted that, quote, of the remaining BLM lands still open to multiple use, there is still a very high bar set before any kind of surface disturbing activities can be authorized and many barriers to a development in existing BLM resource management plans. They say this rule goes too far and is unnecessary. In addition to Governor Brad Little of Wyoming, or excuse me, of Idaho, Wyoming's Governor Mark Gordon and uh, Colorado, Montana Governor Greg Gianforte, Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome were all signers to that letter. They also sent a letter to BLM Director Tracy Stone Manning, hoping that the agency will, of its own accord, pull this rule. <laughs> 
Nothing has been announced as of yet. On the removal of this rule, that comment period is open until July 5th. Log on at regulations.gov and you can comment on that rule. Quick note um, of broader economic importance. We've seen the home building industry suffer as interest rates have been rising. This has been a claim I've heard from several listeners who are also in the home building business that has struggled here in recent months. But in the month of June, we saw the home builder sentiment index, the idea of how how home builders are feeling about their industry climbed to an 11 month high because the limited supply of existing homes on the market continues to push home buyers to look at building new. And despite higher interest rates, they believe that demand is coming. So I would anticipate you to expect to see more ground breakings on housing developments here in the coming months. Two weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about African swine fever and its impact on the hog industry. Obviously, that was up for discussion as international hog industry participants gathered in Des Moines for the World Pork Expo. One of the things to come out of the World Pork Expo continues to be an ongoing look at fighting African swine fever. Just a reminder, folks, African swine fever is a devastating disease. It is fatal to hogs, but it does not have any impact on humans. The challenge for African swine fever is that once it gets into a hog herd, it's almost impossible to eliminate and it can trade it can change trade dynamics as countries do not want that pork that potentially has been exposed to ASF in their country and they restrict imports from the place that has African swine fever that would be that would decimate the US hog industry it is predicated on uh, on exports uh, soaking up the pounds of pork that we can't eat here in this country so if it were to drop off, we would see the hog industry collapse. Well, pork industry experts and federal agencies are working together right now to develop a program that would certify individuals to collect swine samples. The concern being that across rural America, we have seen a lack of large animal or production agriculture veterinarians come on to the field. And should an African swine fever uh, case be detected in the United States, the lack of veterinarians out in the countryside would make testing and controlling for ASF very challenging. So in order to solve for that, APHIS, in collaboration with a number of different folks throughout the pork industry, including the National Pork Board, has developed a certified swine sample collection training program. The idea being we can train an army of folks to be quick responders to react, tra uh, track, and test these hogs if and when African swine fever should have an outbreak. Looking over at the Mississippi River, Mary Kennedy over with DTN reports that the Mississippi is falling. This should not be a shock. We talked with John Baranek earlier on the program about the heat and dryness that has enveloped the middle part of this country, and that is impacting the Mississippi River. Hard to believe that on May 20th, the Mississippi River in St. Paul was cresting at major flood stage one month later, on June 19th, the river was three feet above zero gauge. And Mary reports that this is true throughout much of the upper Mississippi River. That's the area of the Mississippi above St. Louis, where it transitions into the lower Mississippi, where they have seen more water, and there currently aren't too many draft restrictions on tugboats heading south into the lower Mississippi. Another piece of information being broadly watched by the U.S. economy are jobless claims. What's happening with unemployment? This last week, we saw jobless claims revised down by about 50,000 over the last two weeks. However, 
we saw claims increased by 4,000 to 229 for this most recent week. Indications are that unemployment remains low, hiring remains strong, and that could put additional pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates moving. Now, folks, before we go for the day, we've got an interesting new market tracker being built by the Federal Reserve. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are on social media. If you utilize Facebook or Twitter, be sure to follow the show. You can find us at AOA underscore talk show on Twitter or just Google us, Agriculture of America. But the Fed has announced they are going to track Twitter for indications to help forecast changes in monetary policy. Not sure how all that's going to work out, but it sounds like if you've got thoughts, share them on Twitter. The Fed will pick them up and work them into that index. Tomorrow on AOA, we're going to talk with Jeff Johnston about Fed, excuse me, the USDA rolling money into rural broadband. Tune in then. We hope you have a great day. Take care, everyone. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs, or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 209 6416. That's 800-209-6416. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.